Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today I'm having a gas with Digby Lewis, a creative director of branded content with a wealth of experience from businesses like MTV and others. Being fanatical about music, Digby was a great guest who had an extensive knowledge of musical history and theory, and so I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So Digby, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Good morning. Good morning and thank you for solving all the technical problems we just went through. I think we had, was that your other half helping you to stretch an Ethernet cable there? Yeah, it's um, it's the way of, of, of the world now, isn't it? You kind of rope everybody in, um, you know, kind of wife, children, everyone has their part to play in solving ultimate uh, kind of technical challenges. But um, yeah, we're hopefully we're getting there. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. And, you know, there's a, a lot of uh, noise, isn't there, about the unpaid labour that gets... Uh, done around the house and uh, as an interesting way of looking at the stats really not to say that all household labor ought to be paid it's just to say that now we've also included media producers and runners and that kind of thing in in, in it so so we're, we're doing that here um yeah thank you for for doing this i know that we had a brief chat last week after we did our iris music masterclass after which you chimed in and and, and just desperate to share some some musical, uh, what would you call it, interest with similarly minded people. So I'm sure we'll get to all that. But uh, first of all, in a nutshell, what is it? What, what what do you do? What does it mean to be creative director of branded content? It's a mouthful, and it sounds a little bit corporate. Yeah. And obviously, we're, we're really interesting arty types. So yeah, what do you do? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've been with Iris five years, um, and uh, over that time, we've been through um, kind of various sort of stages of having. Uh, kind of departments to focus on particular things um and when i came into the company we didn't really have a sort of content or social media department or team as such um so the first thing really was to sort of build that as capability because we could see that more and more of our clients are spending more and more of their time and their money but creating things that would kind of live in social um and i guess really the the sort of big difference between advertising and content is that you know generally advertising a brand is kind of just telling you through a, through a loud hailer, all the things it wants you to hear, right? Yes. Um, and on the content side of it, it's completely different. We're trying to create things or content creators create things that audiences are want, will want to gravitate towards, yes. um, whether that's TV, film, music or anything else. Uh, and, and those two things have a quite interesting kind of tension if you're working for a brand. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of the, the early work we were doing as a team, as a department, was to try and sort of navigate that kind of tension. So, you know, what rights does a brand have to create something um, that uh, that somebody sitting at home or in an office or on the train um, is going to take time out of their day uh, to watch, listen, perhaps even kind of re- to respond to. So, you know, it's a big kind of sort of behaviour shift for, for advertisers and, and that kind of world of uh, kind of branded content or branded entertainment has been kind of growing steadily for you know for for, for quite a while now. And I think can that I, can I um, a question in, in English, just to, just just to make sure I'm understanding. So advertising uh, proper or advertising traditional is we have these broadcast media channels. We have TV, we have billboards that people can't resist looking at and we have radio and we can blast messaging out of it. Now, the domain, uh, the internet has leveled a playing field a bit. You can find whatever you want and that's what we're calling content here. It's the stuff that I go to YouTube to watch. I watch music videos, I watch production, stuff like this. And you're saying now the branded world has had to get into that domain and 
get involved in content that people magnetize towards without it being blasted at them? Yeah, it's exactly that. I think historically brands have always needed that kind of intermediary, whether it's TV, billboards, out of home, in order to get that message across. And I think that when uh, YouTube and social media came along, the ability to speak directly to people was the thing that kind of fundamentally changed. And not every brand has the opportunity to kind of build that sort of one-to-one interpersonal relationship with their with their customers. But you can see the kind of the big brands that have the most kind of loyal followings um, do have the ability to enter into that kind of dialogue with people. So that sort of fundamentally changes the, the, the types of things that you make um, and the types of ways that you kind of communicate with people. Can you give us like an example? You say brands that have loyal followings can command an audience. Some brand examples, we're thinking Nike. Um, I think probably we would say, I mean, Adidas is a good example. Um, I think in the sports world, I think they have, um, you know, any, any kind of brand, any sports brand that's able to build a kind of grassroots following. Yeah. Uh, if you look at the word Adidas does across their kind of football uh, kind of activations, they do everything from kind of grassroots football um, so have we? There's a thing called Tango League, um, which is more kind of sort of the world of street football, um, all the way up to you know the kind of the big uh, partnerships with um, the likes of Arsenal, obviously with the branded kits um, and the work that we, we kind of do globally with their um, their kind of biggest kind of global superstar players. So you know that that's a um, a good example of a, of a brand kind of activating all the way through a particular kind of vertical. So you've got fans of the big club, but also you've got the kids who are out there kind of playing at the weekend. Wow. Okay. Okay. Cool. So your responsibility is uh, what to make sure that uh, the you've got brands who want to communicate directly with their audience, and 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 it's your job to think of a clever way to do that. Yeah, kind of. I think that some some uh, instances we. Uh, we think about what might be an appropriate method or format for an idea to live in social media. Um, so, for example, when you think about the kind of the user behaviour and people scrolling for miles and miles and miles every day through their phone, um, what is going to be either kind of visually interesting um, or kind of sort of catch the attention? Um, that's kind of one thing that we think about. Another might be, and particularly in the sort of the content space where the, the, the format of the ideas tends to be kind of longer form. So advertising traditionally is a 30-second ad spot or maybe a 60-second if you've got a kind of a very kind of big kind of hero film to work with. Um, but, you know, in content, we're thinking more about kind of episodic, episodic ideas, kind of more closer to kind of broadcasting type behaviour. Mm. So if you have an idea that can, be, can, can live across half a dozen episodes that might be three to five minutes or 15 minutes or even kind of half hour episodes, um, then you're sort of having to think about different ways to articulate what it is the brand is bringing to that. You know, on one hand, is the brand simply enabling this content to get made, which is part of the brand's entertainment world. Um, if you look at what uh, Channel 4 is doing, there's lots of examples of, bar- of brands helping TV shows get made. Um, and then the, the other way is to think about, well, what is it, um, you know, the, what, what is the kind of the brand sort of purpose or ideals or values? Um, and is there a way to communicate that through programming? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean we're talking about products um, or offers or, or, you know, or kind of traditional sort of merchandising, advertising type behavior. So it's a bit more kind of thematic uh, and perhaps a bit more sort of purpose and values led. Okay. So um, that's what you're doing now. And uh, what's going to be really uh, an interesting journey to go on is to uh, rewind uh, as to where you started and then figure out why it is that you're qualified to be advising these brands on this kind of thing. Because um, I'm sure with your level of uh, verbal acuity, you know, you're a very articulate person, 
you could probably blag your way into any job and convince <laughs> people it needs doing. But you had you have had a journey on this, right? Uh, from uh, the you know the, there's a continuum from seven years old to where we are now that's taken us through things like MTV uh, and, and producers like that. Um, so 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 let's go back. Um, how did this all start? How did the, the the journey you're on begin? I think there's always been an interesting thing between because um, I, I guess the the thing that's run through through my whole kind of life and as much as possible in terms of a career is music. Yes. Um, you know, I, I I first picked up a guitar at the age of seven uh, because I had an older brother who refused to practice. So my parents said, "I'm not going to pay for your lessons anymore. Give the guitar to that one." <laughs> um, uh, and I don't I don't consciously remember choosing to play the guitar. Right. Um, I just remember going for my first lesson, and I still remember going for my first lesson. You know, and trying to kind of understand how you kind of sort of play the different strings and kind of before you even with left hand, you know, kind of start start moving notes around. Um, and um, for some reason, I just sort of took to it, you know, uh, and, and, and loved playing. And I think the guitar is quite difficult because particularly at a young age, I was playing a full-size classical as well. Um, uh, it's, it's quite difficult to make a good sound. Um, and I think for, for kids playing instruments, um, I think there's that kind of, there's that, that hurdle you have to get over, which is for, for, for the first kind of period of time, you're just making a noise. Yes. You know? And in order to get something kind of gratifying back from it, you need to kind of, kind of get to that level of, okay, this isn't just a noise now. I'm get, actually getting some pleasure back from it. And I can start yeah. to see how this is going to become a thing, right? And your sense um, of time as a child is so augmented. Everything feels so long. Yeah. You imagine it probably only takes you a year to get anything like good, but that feels like 10 years if you're seven. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I started having um, guitar lessons. Um, I think fairly quickly after that, I started taking piano lessons and I sang as well. So I was you know, kind of singing in sort of school choirs and, and kind of that kind of stuff. Um, and um, I was uh, put forward for a music scholarship mm -hmm. at uh, 12 um, with classical guitar being the first study. And uh, my, my music teacher, my parents were ringing around various schools saying, you know, do you have a music scholarship program? Yes, we do. Um, what does he play? Classical guitar, not interested, put the phone down. Um, and um, uh, the, most of the schools wanted to have orchestral instrumentalists. Okay. So they wanted to have, you know, kind of sort of violinists and cello players and woodwind players who would, in inverted commas, be useful to them when they got to school and wanted to, you know, kind of participate in, in stuff and they're going to give something back. Um, and, um, and my school uh, music teacher, or the school, the school I went to, um, they said, what does he play? Classical guitar. Yeah, we haven't, we've never had one of them. Um, can you send him along? So uh, I went along to what would have been sort of a Victorian version of an X Factor type kind of sort of panel kind of yeah. uh, experience where you go into a room with lots of kind of very sort of dusty people. Um, and I sort of played guitar for a bit and played some piano and, and kind of sang. Um, and they went, oh, that's all very good. Let's do some ear tests. And um, uh, and then and then one of them down the end sort of went, well, this is all very well, you're playing the guitar, but, you know... Um, how, have you ever thought about playing something sort of orchestral? Mm. Uh, and completely unprepared, and I had no idea why I said this, um, I said, I've always a trombone. <laughs> and the guy on the end nearly fell off his chair. He said, that's fantastic. We've got none of them. Can you start tomorrow? Um, <laughs> so I went back to school, and my teacher said, yeah, how did the exam go? How did the audition go? And I said, well... Okay, I think. Apparently, I've got to start playing the trombone. Um, and uh, you know, he sort of rooted around in a cupboard and sort of pulled some lengths of piping out. 
that sort of went a little bit like this. Um, and I started playing that as well. So, so all the way through school, I was sort of doing lots of different things. Um, but the trombone enabled me to get into brass bands, orchestras, that sort of more kind of communal kind of, kind of side of playing as well, which I think is really important from, a, uh, from an instrumentalist point of view. The difference between a solo player and, being, and playing as part of an ensemble, whether it's a band, a group, you know, or an orchestra, or even a choir, um, I think it's, it's really important for developing your ear and your sense of empathy and sympathy with those around you. Yeah, yeah, that's actually um, a... Uh, a really important part of becoming part of the the you know a school ensemble and learning the the reciprocal game early on in life because there's a great bit by Eddie Izzard I might try and get uh, our editor to wedge it in where he talks about you know the the typical school band experience where you know you've got the first the first clarinets they get the tune the second ones kind of get this you know backup and the third clarinets get the notes that are left over so you're just there playing a single monotonic going and you know everyone uh, there's no sense of uh, what would you call it a harmonic hierarchy so the melody has to sing sometimes it can sink below a particularly important harmonic note but generally you have a, a singing top line and then things that are supporting it underneath and making this lovely chordal sound in school you go i'm going to play really loud but so obviously that was my school experience your school experience i imagine was somewhat different because it sounds like you're describing a kind of more prestige environment uh, in terms of how rigorous the audition process was yeah, it was. It was taken quite seriously. I mean, ha having having won a music scholarship, um, you you know, you know they're obviously they're, they're kind of paying for all of your music education, that which was great because it enabled me to to, to do lots of stuff um, and kind of to try and immerse myself as fully as possible into it all. We we then gave back a lot of our time for it as well. So you know, in in the in the school kind of chapel choir, we were doing, you know, kind of um, rehearsals all the time. Uh, obviously, there were services throughout the weekend and the weekends. And then there were concert tours as well. So we so we would kind of decamp and kind of go off and kind of do uh, sort of big kind of international concert tours. And they're quite, you know, in, intensive as, as a travelling orchestra would be. You know, you're kind of going from place to place to place with a sort of repertoire of things you can do. Um, and I think that some of the sort of greatest experiences growing up with, with, was having that opportunity to travel around different places and perform, you know, to audiences all over the place, whether it be, I mean, w one of the most sort of fun actually tours we did was, the, was Northern Cathedrals in England, because uh, in terms of an environment to sing in, yes. you know, going to York Minster or Durham or Ripon or Link or those amazing kind of architectural spaces where the music was written to be formed in exactly that kind of space. Yes, now yeah. that's how you can tell you've read uh, David Byrne's book, even if you came to that conclusion on your own. David Byrne makes a great case, doesn't he, for the music we listen to is actually shaped by the acoustics of our time. So cathedrals create these enormous reverbs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, the same thing with concert halls. And, and even now when it comes down to playing in, you know, kind of smaller rooms and, um, and you think about how, how digital technology is trying to mimic or emulate those kind of spaces as well. So now the ability to sit down at my laptop and, uh, and think about, okay, what kind of room do I think I want this to be performed in? And if it's a, uh, if it's a sort of a quiet kind of voice and jazz guitar kind of duet number, then being able to sort of emulate that kind of small sort of jazz types of the room and space and gives you that sense of kind of ambience and feeling that kind of goes into the writing and recording process as well. So it's interesting how that is, um, you know, not just the audience, but actually the space you're playing or performing in is, is kind of really important to the music itself. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and with regards specifically to cathedrals as well, I do... 
sympathize with some modern thinkers who say, uh, you know, it might not be for the best that we've, it might not only be for the good that we've become largely a secular or you might even say atheistic society because with the, you know, the idea of what we've rendered into being with a cathedral, uh, you could only do that if you uh, were a society that believed you had to offer something up pretty substantial to something like a god. And, a, you know, a cathedrals are remarkable things. We don't have architecture like that now, you know. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't know what to think about that. I think the uh, interesting thing about some music that was written for those particular kind of spaces is you think about church music and, and singing and generally you think that it's, it's the most conformist kind of music. Yes. Um, but actually, you know, when you think about composers like Taverner, um, who were deeply devout and religious people. That's um, they, for the benefit of the Yeah, people. yeah. Really kind of sort of pushed the boundaries of what the human voice and the architecture can do in sympathy to each other. So there are long passages of things that just sort of blend into each other, and it just simply wouldn't work in that environment. And also, um, we were talking about it the other day, but um, composers like William Burt, um, you, who could see that there was an opportunity with, within those spaces and, and using the voice, um, to do something than simply singing one note per syllable or one note per word. Um, and when he wrote his four-part mass, um, at the time it was illegal to write kind of multi-syllable phrases, yeah. um, you know, and, or to stretch kind of musical phrases across, you know, a, a single syllable. And so, so you know, the, the ability to, to see uh the the environment and to, to look at the rule book and go well actually we're not going to follow the rules because we that we can push it further yes um existed even in those times when you kind of think you actually would think everything was kind of pretty boring <laughs> that's really so this hangs on to something i've been thinking about recently um i have you ever heard of a, a youtuber called vsauce yes michael i know him yeah you know michael yeah get out of here I actually, I want to do a sketch, a Vsauce sketch, if Vsauce was president. Uh, <laughs> maybe you can put that forward to him. But um, yeah, uh, he, in this video, Juvenoia, brought this quote from Orwell. What was it? Every generation imagines, imagines themselves to be more intelligent than everyone who came before them and wiser than everyone who comes after them. And so what we imagine is that the idea of conformity, sorry, uh, non-conformity, rebellion, anarchy, we only really discovered ideas like that in about 1976 when we had punk rock. But uh, we've always been the same humans just living in a, you know, this, this timeline of roughly 2,000 years is what we can kind of grip onto in our heads. Yeah. And um, even when everything was theological, everything was done from under the barrier of the church, you had punks in the church trying to break the rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I, um, uh, as part of my music degree, which I went on to do, um, I studied um, 20th century avant-garde classical music for, for a period of time. Um, and, and for lots of people, that's the hardest music to listen to. Um, you know, it sounds dissonant, it sounds atonal. Um, there's, it's very difficult to kind of latch onto any sort of frame of reference. And therefore people kind of say, oh, I don't like modern classical music. It just sounds like an absolute dirge. Um, and what, what my lecturer was, was getting us to understand is um, that's precisely because we don't understand it. We're unfamiliar with it. And actually you kind of take any genre of music, if it's completely alien to you, uh, and you've never heard it before, the brain doesn't know quite how to sort of synthesise it. And, yeah. and we're constantly looking for references and motifs that we can sort of hang on to. Yeah. 
mm. which is why when you think about how kind of contemporary pop music works, you know, it's kind of built on these repeatable structures and formats that the brain recognises. Yes. And Ray simply kind of goes, oh, I like this because I've heard something like it before. Yeah. And so when you think about, you know, Shostakovich and Provokiev and what those composers were doing, again, they were presenting people with stuff that you had never really heard before. Mm-hmm. So it's quite difficult to, to sort of latch on to. So again, another example of how, you know, kind of classical music being kind of considered the traditional thing um, sometimes presents us with the most challenging stuff. And I think the same thing would apply to, um, you know, when you think about the kind of influence of kind of sort of modern jazz um, and where, you know, Keith Jarrett and Chick Career and Miles Davis were sort of going in terms of pushing that tonality. And it's all kind of challenging the ear, challenging the stuff that we recognize. Yeah, that's... Um... You were talking about jazz. We're talking about Keith Jarrett, Chick Corea, and people like that. And I like the image of the culture is kind of within this circle. It's explored territory, right? Right in the middle of that circle is the most boring stuff because it's so familiar that it's kind of slap in the middle of the mainstream. And on the edge, over the edge of the boundary is what you were describing about this 20th century atonal music. Impossible to understand because it's so unfamiliar. And on the boundary of the edge of that circle between the unknown and the known is where people like Keith Jarrett, etc. They stand as radars to try and pull in what we don't understand. So when you get modern people, for example, they think, oh, jazz, that's just elevator kind of, uh, you know. Um... And mo- modern jazz or jazz of, you know, the kind of thing that you would hear at Band on the Wall now is uh, n- not that at all. And it, obviously, you know, you know Keith Jarrett and some of his stuff. A lot of it would sound to the untrained ear, and this is what you were describing about it. Our brain doesn't recognise it as kind of like. And yeah. so people would just turn it off straight away. But what's really going on there, in your opinion? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's you. Um, it takes a bit of analysis, and I think the reason that the jazz is difficult to. Um, to always appreciate, I think particularly, you know, jazz is often seen as like the musician's music. Yes. Um, and, and I think that if you, if you are able to sort of analyse it, um, then then you have to sort of, you have to realise actually in amongst that kind of deluge of notes, there is still a structure, you know, and, and the thing, Miles Davis used to say, there's no such thing as a wrong note until you play the next one. <laughs> um, and so, so it's, it's all about kind of where you are in, in relation to your anchor. Um, and I think, you know, Jacob Collier talks about this really nicely. You know, it basically, all, all music really is storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, it's, and it's the ability to kind of understand you start off at a place and you're going to another place. And it's the journey that you go on. And then ultimately, it's how you kind of find home again. Um, <laughs> and I think the same is, is true with, with jazz. And if you, you can go back to um, Charlie Parker and, and those sort of players... Um, and it's all about understanding kind of where, where, where the chords are taking you in terms of that story and their ability to sort of go further and further away from the path, yeah. um, but still kind of come back to home again. Um, and so I think, you know, if you kind of went off on a completely sort of random sort of train of, of notes and sort of landed a, a, over there somewhere, then it would never be, um, it would never work, it would never resolve, you know. And I think that even the kind of the most um, avant-garde jazz uh, when you actually kind of sit down and analyse it, I mean, there are only so many notes, right? Um, let's let's take Western tonality as, as the kind of the, the the range that we're in. So, for, um, the, uh, for these, just for the benefit of the audience, people who aren't familiar, by Western tonality, do we basically mean the diatonic scale? Yeah. Anything you can play on a piano. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, and, I, and again, again, that's where I think you know, the likes of uh, Chick Corea and Keith Jarrett are interesting because they were using um, voltage 
to, to push those notes from the diatonic scale out a bit. So you suddenly start moving things, you know, and Herbie Hancock started using his keytar and kind of bending notes and modulation and so on. Um, but, you know, this, this idea that we have a framework, we have a set of rules, and, and all that jazz musicians were doing and all that classical composers were doing at that time was to try and push it as far as, as possible, but still working within that framework to ultimately make some kind of sense. Right, okay. So... Um, I want to take a bit of a, not, not, not a U-turn, and I can't be bothered thinking of the analogy, uh, to pull it back to where you've been and where you're going. So uh, just on the guitar, I can see one, uh, it, there's one present in case we need a blue Peter. Here's one I made earlier. For yeah. the benefit of the YouTube viewers, can you show us the difference between classical form and what most people play it like? So classical guitar, this is an English concert classical. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, made by a gentleman called Robert Welford, who lives in Cambridge, um, and um, this was made in 1989. Wow! Um, and didn't leave the house very much these days. <laughs> um, I actually performed it out at a, at a jazz night in, in London for Old Fashioned um, about uh, a couple of years ago. That's the last time I sort of played it out. Um, but yeah, the sort of the tr- traditional sort of classical guitar. You often see the guitar kind of held like this. Um, sometimes the player has their kind of knee raised, um, and yeah, you know, the sort of the, the technique, the action on these guitars is quite hard. So you have to kind of have a bit of technique in order to make a sort of decent sound. You know? the, so, to the to the to the untrained people, action on guitar means distance between string and fretboard. Absolutely, yeah. So so the action on these, particularly on concert classicals, because the concert classical is designed to project to a, to a hall, yeah. Yes. Um, so, so, so the, so the guitar is kind of, it's, it's nylon strings on the top three and then it's round strings on the, on the, kind of the base, uh, bottom three strings. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the sound is entirely made from the instrument. So, you know, you play a note, you plug the string and the, basically kind of the sound disappears down here, vibrates around the table, which is the front piece of the guitar resonates and then the sound kind of pops back out again yeah. and actually there, there's some really interesting new modern designs for uh, flamenco and, and concert classicals that are experimenting with putting the holes in different parts of the, of the instrument wow uh, to see how that affects both the tone but also the way that it sort of sounds so it's a very you know, it's, it's got a lot of attack the um the, 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 the concert classical <laughs> So it's you know it's um it's a note that has a, a big sort of front end and then kind of decays really sort of quickly. Yes. Um and it has a very big dynamic range as well. So you uh, you think about um, uh, Rodrigo's con- uh, concerto for for classical guitar. You know they have sort of movements that are very kind of light. Can you play us a few bars maybe? Sorry. Can you play us a few bars maybe? Um. I can't, I can't remember all of it now, but um, I think, you know, um, we, you're trying, in some instances, you're trying to kind of play a melody line over an orchestra. Okay. Um, and, and trying to kind of deal with that um, you know, in, with an instrument that is effectively entirely acoustic. Mm-hmm. Um, is sort of is sort of quite challenging. So, um, so it's kind of just dealing with that um, sort of dynamic range um, on the classical guitar is um, uh, yeah, it, it's something that's kind of interesting both in terms of performance, but also uh, thinking again about your kind of surroundings and, and where you're sort of playing. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's the kind of concert classical. 
Um, and what's the way modern people play it by comparison and what's the difference and why is it important? Uh, so then you have the sort of the electrified instrument. So an electric guitar like this one. So this has, has pickups here, which effectively are microphones. The microphones will then pick up the, the resonating string and then transmit that through either a cable or through a wireless um, into an amplifier. So if I take the take the, um, uh, the adapter out, the transmitter out. There's no sound, yeah? Perspective, very, very dull. It's very dull because you have a solid body instrument. That guitar has, has a, a hollow body. The sound is generated by reverberating around it and, and flying out the front. Uh, on this one, this is, a, this is a solid body guitar and the sound is generated through the pickups. So... <laughs> So, so yeah, so so the sound actually is a lot more uh, sort of controllable by the by the player. Um, you know, the the classical guitar kind of has one sound. It has the dynamic range, but it sounds like a nylon string classical. Um, with this, you kind of have the ability to play um, through an amplifier that has lots of different effects and processes. So most guitarists spend a lot of their time thinking about how to shape the sound, uh, process it, because the actual kind of pure, clean sound um, is, you know, is, is only kind of one very specific kind of facet of, of what's on offer. And that's actually also, that brings us to a, one of the dangers of uh, rapid technological development, because uh, it brings a lot of benefits and it brings a lot of opportunities. But James Blake, who is uh, one of, probably one of the most influential producers in the world, uh, right now, shaped the sound of the last 10 years or helped to, uh, said, uh, think chords, not plugins, which is his way of saying, you still need to think musically more than you think about the technology. And it's very easy to get obsessed with getting that perfect guitar amp and getting just the right EQ on it or getting just the right compression and EQ. And all of a sudden, you're not thinking with a musical brain. Yeah, absolutely. I think the ultimately, you know, we, we said before that the, you know, the music is all about storytelling. And even if you're looking at how sort of uh, kind of the sort of contemporary kind of pop music is written, um, the songs that are most interesting are the ones that still have got that kind of chordal progression or they're doing something interesting with kind of melody and harmony. Mm. Um, and um, you kind of think back to some of the sort of the greatest kind of popular works um, and there's always something in that that is interesting from a musical point of view. Um, and of course, it doesn't have to always be kind of notes. You know, you can, you can create sounds... Um, and you can create things that have the impression of melody and harmony that are more percussive. Um, and you think about how perhaps kind of different cultures and different music around the world will kind of bring more of that sort of percussive element into it. I'm particularly sort of thinking kind of Eastern, Eastern tonality as well, where the use of kind of bells and drums um, and uh, percussionists. I mean, someone like uh, Trilok Gertu, for example, you know, effectively he's, he's a percussionist, but it sounds like he's playing an orchestra uh, because everything kind of has its own kind of sound and, and kind of pitch to it as well. But um, I think that's, that you, can, you can totally get obsessed with um, the, the, the production side, whether it's the production of your sound or the production of a, a single piece of music and lose sight of um, what was originally recorded. I heard... Um, uh, a really interesting interview, um, uh, which was uh, talking about um, Christina Aguilera uh, recording the song Beautiful, that was a massive hit. 
sure. probably about 15 years ago now. Um, and um, she came in to record a demo and she sat down at the piano and she played it and she sang. Um, and the producer uh, wanted to put that version out. Uh, and for about nine months, she kept on, on uh, Christina kept on saying, no, no, I want to come back and do the vocals properly. Uh, and the producer said, so it was, Linda Perry was the producer, um, and she said, um, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep probably 95% of your original vocal because that has your original intention. It wasn't over overperformed, mm. you know, it, and it had that kind of raw purity that is what the song is all about. And the minute you start to overdub and overlay things and re-record, um, it kind of loses that sense of um, honesty, yeah. kind of authenticity. Yeah. Um, and you can start to feel that, you know, it might sound more polished, um, but it's, it loses that kind, of, that kind of X factor, which is something that actually the Beastie Boys talk about in their book, mm-hmm. is that when they kind of got big, they went from kind of recording stuff in their mates' bedrooms to going into kind of big, shiny studios in LA. And it just didn't have the same sort of character and feeling that their original demos did. Yes, I think that's a, that's a risk that a lot of emerging artists are quite sensitive to. I sent you some of the work by um, my close friend Hamdi. Um, and uh, he and I are locked in debate almost constantly about whether you need to basically polish the sound or not. So he's saying, you know, I'm using cheap, nasty sounding samples uh, because that's the current culture amongst people who can't, who are making the new emergent music and can't afford big sample packs, big studios. And then, you know, I, the line side I come down on is that's true. We need to have the authenticity. However, uh, a bad mix still ruins a song for everyone. Like no one can listen to a bad mix. It sounds unprofessional. And I don't know how to resolve that uh, debate. And that's what's going on in the Aguilera example there. It's like, you know, I'd be, I'd be on the side of Christina, unfortunately, Uh, not, and I'm glad that I was, you know, we were wrong in this case. Say, no, 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 you can't, you can't release a demo. You need to do it properly. You need to have two mics on the voice. You need to, uh, yeah. So I think the debate is never resolved. That's the problem, isn't it? There's never one answer. Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, I, I guess if you've got, if you're striving to create a good sound, yeah, then uh, capturing it in the best way possible it makes sense. Um, if you're if you're seeking to um, to to, to to manipulate the sounds out of the things you've got, and actually you're not striving for some kind of 360 sort of experience, then then that is part of the character and the reason you're kind of doing it that way. And I think that it's always it's always easier or better to record something well and then produce it into a corner than to start off in a corner and then realise that you can't really kind of take it anywhere because you haven't you just don't have the sonic spectrum to work with. Right. So is that is that a way of saying you can easily it you can't you can't start it's hard it's harder to start with something bad and make it good than yeah. to start with something brilliant. You, you know you can easily just you know don't touch it too much leave it as it is but you can easily knock that into nothing by overproducing it. Yeah, I think that's it. I think you can um, and and it's the same reason why I mean I tend to record a lot of my guitar stuff completely clean mm-hmm. because then I know I've got the flexibility in post production to try different things out, whether it's different reverbs or effects or processing the signal in some way, or perhaps to kind of double track it or even just kind of leave it as it was. Mm. You know, whereas if I, if I put all that stuff on the pedal board in front of the guitar, in front of the recorder, mm. then you don't really kind of have anywhere to sort of go, go to. Yeah. Okay. So what we've established, what we have established here is that, you know, it was music that 
started off your your journey in life and you're obviously very knowledgeable and very uh, well-equipped and very uh, experienced. So the question is why when leaving school did you not descend into a life of, you know, uh, only being musical? How did you end up being branded content director at uh, Iris? Yeah, I think the... And my, my degree, I was able to do a degree that was a, was a combined media studies and music degree. Um, and for the first time, that the emphasis was away from practical playing, although there were a couple of um, kind of studio production modules that I did. Um, and it was much more about, it was much more kind of sort of theory and sort of classroom-led. Uh, and uh, at the time... I was thinking because when I left school, one of the one of the potential routes was to try and get into one of the uh, conservatoires and, and be a classical guitarist. Yeah. Um, but you know the the kind of career prospects for classical guitarists are fairly limited. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not kind of uh, in the vanguard at the moment. You know, the classical guitar. And most, um, most people out there can't name a single classical guitarist. Yeah, and I think that over the years there are probably sort of you know kind of a handful that that, that have been successful. I mean, there are there are some around today. Uh, Milos is probably the kind of the most kind of widely known as a young guy who kind of plays the guitar brilliantly and commands sort of concert orchestras. But when I was growing up as a kid, you know, we used to think of. Uh, I mean, I remember going to see Andre Segovia when I was very small. You know, and and, and he was like the kind of the god of guitar. Mm. Um, Julian Bream, John Williams for a, for a long while was the, the other two great um, players. J- John Williams kind of went more into the sort of the uh, the popular world, whereas Julian Bream stayed very kind of pure to the classical guitar and the lutes that he played. Um, but I also used to um, uh, you know, love the likes of um, John McLaughlin, who also used to collaborate with guitarists in different genres as well. So Paco de Lucia, I discovered as a result of John McLaughlin. So John McLaughlin played lots of kind of very sort of far out kind of jazz fusion with Miles Davis in the 60s and 70s. Um, uh, uh, but he also did lots of very flamenco influenced work with uh, Aldi Miola and, and Paco de Lucia. So in terms of, you know, what I was thinking of doing was uh, probably kind of looking for a, for a career Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that the pressure to get into music college uh, as, as a player was, was kind of very high. Um, and also I didn't realise at the time that there were, there were kind of other viable alternatives to being a solo instrumentalist. Yeah. Um, I didn't really know, for example, that you could have a career as a session player. Mm-hmm. And obviously kind of many people have, have, have gone on to be prolific and very successful kind of session players for, for different artists. And that takes a lot of the pressure away from you being the artist as well. So I didn't realise that, that existed. But so uh, one of my teachers... For, um, a good example for sort of the mainstream audiences uh, of, a, of a successful session player uh, would be, everyone knows uh, Life on Mars by David Bowie. Yeah. The session piano was, of course, Rick Wakeman. Yeah. And um, uh, Rick Wakeman appeared on so many... Uh, I believe this is correct. He appeared on so many popular records while he was at, um, I think he was at Royal College, uh, that they kicked him out. <laughs> you keep doing sessions and not doing your work. So just go and make money doing sessions. Well, what are we doing? You know. So, so in, my, in my school holidays, I used to um, uh, work at a local Italian restaurant called Villaggio's. Uh, and uh, the Villaggio's is run and is still run by the Palladino family. Uh, and... Um, uh, Marco, who was one of the sons, who was, who was managing the restaurant, uh, would talk about his brother, who was often away playing um, 
uh, playing on session work or doing kind of live. And, um, and every now and again, this kind of really sort of tall guy would sort of come into the restaurant um, and he was gigantic and, um, and looked and look really impressive and looked kind of very different to everyone else. Um, and I would say, you know, who's that? And he'd say, well, that's Pino Palladino. And Pino Palladino is probably the greatest bass session player in history. Wow. He's played on everything from kind of Live Aid, he did all the Elton John stuff. Um, for a period of time, you know, Trevor Horn and the big producers would only book him. Wow. Um, so, you know, so, so that was that was an interesting insight into a kind of a world that sort of did exist. But but trying to understand how to get into that, I kind of had sort of no idea. But um, yeah, I mean, there, there, there are some wonderful kind of session players. I mean, even think about... Um, you know, kind of the Rolling Stones, and you know, and, and actually, kind of some of the biggest bands in the world have have and still do rely on session players to sort of keep them kind of going. You know, so Ronnie Wood was a session guitarist. Yeah. You know, he wasn't he wasn't a full time member of the band for a long while. Yeah. Um, you know, so and that kind of relationship always you know is is kind of there between the sort of in inverted commas hired help and the ones who are you know, kind of, they're kind of founder members, if you will. So, yeah, I think that's interesting is understanding kind of where the opportunities as a career kind of take you. Yeah. No, that's, that is the distinction, isn't it? Uh, that you, there's the difference between performing musician and artist or whose ideas are respected. And in the modern environment where everything's done on laptops and, and digital workstations, the closest, I suppose, to a uh, the, the the new analogy for a session musician is like a producer, isn't it? We we got someone to produce the beat for this track. Um, that often is the case with I, I know Drake's exec producer is Noah Shabib, aka Forty, but often they get some guest producer to produce the beat for Nonstop or Passion Fruit. I think Passion Fruit was done by a Londoner, but. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's a similar thing, isn't it? It's, you know, you are not necessarily going to get name artist status, but your skills are so lauded that you are considered a, a, a valuable resource. And often through doing that, you become uh, known for your style. Obviously, Wakeman's style became associated with that Life on Mars kind of flowery pseudo-classicalism. Yeah, um, and I think that all through all genres, there have been great session musicians who have left that kind of magic dust across the work they've done. Um, in the guitar world, I think about Spanky Alford, who was a brilliant R&B guitarist, you know, who's done everything, you know, from D'Angelo's work um, through his kind of more sort of traditional kind of soul and R&B. Um, and, and you can just, you can hear that it's there, you know, and it adds something completely different and unique. And, and without that kind of element, even if it's just a kind of a small part, it just changes the entire kind of shape and, and, and ultimate result of the work as well. So you can have a really important part to play. It's like, I like, I liken it to sort of a character actor in a film. Yes. You know, somebody who sort of comes on, it might be only a small role, but they add something special that kind of gives it that kind of sense of kind of shape and, and kind of fulfilment. And they never get the kind of lead status, but they're always heralded for their, you know, appearance as, you know, yeah. someone. Like, can you think of any good examples? I'm trying to think of one now. Um... Trying to think who's uh, who. Do you, know, who's... Uh, do you know? Do you know the West Wing at all? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, Richard Schiff, who plays Toby Ziegler in that. You know, whenever he turns up, he's usually very high quality, and you know, you're going to get a solid, you know, theatrical trained proper performance. Yeah. You would never see him being, you know, Daniel Day Lewis or yes. Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of status. Yes. Yeah. yeah, quite. Steve Buscemi is another example of an actor that kind of turns up in a lot of things. Yes. Um, has a kind of, I, mean, I think you know, a lot of the kind of Tarantino films do a brilliant job of bringing in great characters who just have small parts to play. So, uh, well, a yeah, big part of um, Tarantino's initial thrust, well, uh, not a big part of Tarantino's world is reviving 
the careers of actors who he just watched the movie over the weekend and loved it and had to cast them, you know, so. Yeah. And also the music as well. I mean, you know, I think he was responsible for bringing that whole kind of, kind of desert rock sound through because he was, he was going back into mm. kind of, you know, 60s Americana uh, and uncovering music that people just haven't heard for a long time. And, yes. and you know, it brings it back to kind of popular attention, which is, I think, you know, the, getting into the sort of the role of, of kind of music in TV, film and advertising, you know, I think it's, has, it plays a really important part. Whether you're a, an aspiring artist, it's still a great discovery opportunity. Mm. Um, but also, you know, it, 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 it enables, you know, music is all just about discovery, isn't it? I mean, you can spend a lifetime thinking that you have, a fairly good, good handle on certain genres or kind of certain uh, aspects of it. And then you turn a page and realise that you actually just on, only know one tiny fragment of the universe. Oh, yes. yeah. And there's still so much out there. Yeah. the I mean, that was the example my, with my dad. Uh, you know, we were, so, we, were, we were devoted enough to jazz that we saw Dave Brubeck on his final tour at the Bridgewater Hall. And yet my dad didn't hear the Cologne concert by Keith Jarrett until 2007. And yeah. like, how have I missed this entire this entire swath of, of jazz? So, but this is again, you know, we've uh, uh, established, uh, you know, you had some options, and, and how did you get to MTV? Uh, I so I was I was writing. I was basically working as a um, freelance journalist. Um, I'd been doing bits and pieces when I left college. Um, basically, when I, by the time I left university, I was playing in bands. I spent my three years, three years at university, basically in bands. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, and, and doing some session work, bits and pieces of session work. Uh, I then kind of started to kind of do some freelance writing uh, as a kind of a day job mm-hmm. um, and did some bits and pieces for newspapers and some magazine work. Um, I took two years um, out. To, I went to the Far East for a couple of years. My brother lived in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went out there for a holiday and it was just pre the handover in 97 uh, and decided to stay there for, for a while. I ended up spending two years there because I thought it was just an incredible place, so different to anything I'd experienced before and, and going through a, a very uh, really interesting time in its, in its, kind of, in, in its history as well um, with the transfer of power back to China. Um, and I got a job working on a couple of magazines um, and, and was starting to kind of forge a career as, as, a, as a writer. And... When I came back to the UK, having done a few more magazine jobs, um, an opportunity came up at MTV to work uh, in their international um, team uh, as a kind of website writer and editor. Um, And we would do everything from uh, kind of events coverage. um, We would um, do some kind of movie reviews. Uh, and also we would interview bands as well. Um, And we had a very kind of close relationship with MTV News, which... Um, operated as a as a kind of a central production team, um, and um, and we used to artists would come over from from wherever we would do a forty five minute network interview with them, um, and then that tape would then get sent around the regions if the talent wasn't able to travel to that market. So it, it meant that we were able to capture lots in London and kind of service all of the regions with with this interview content, which would go into their kind of daily news bulletins. And the, the UK team used to kind of get their own time as well because it was happening in the same often in the same location. But um, yeah, I spent five years there, um, effectively migrating from uh, being a kind of a a kind of a, a writer editor into being a kind of TV producer, producer director, and, and doing lots, lots Sorry, of these interviews. What year did you begin? Two thousand and one to two thousand and six. Ninety a year freelance after that. So you um, kind of on the uh, the uh, the 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 time that traditional media was started showing its first cracks. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, the role of MTV at the time, particularly in terms of you know a music programming platform, mm-hmm. uh, was to premiere and to promote the artists through the music video. So, you know, you think about kind of the the sort of heyday of of the music re- video really was sort of the end of the nineties, early two thousands, where you know the biggest artists in the world, whether it was Michael Jackson, Madonna. Um, they were creating these amazing kind of set-piece videos that were cinematic in quality, hugely high production values. Um, Yes, directors who were like name directors. Yeah, directors like Hype Williams, who would get paid millions of dollars to to produce a Janet Jackson video, for example, or a Michael Jackson video. Um, And and some of the greatest film directors were getting gigs as as music video directors. And I think what was interesting about the early 2000s is you, you then had a new generation of director that came through um, who started off in music um, music pop promos first before going on to be successful with film and Spike Jones is probably the most famous example of that so you think about the Weapon of Choice video um, a lot of the Fatboy Slim stuff um, you know he he was sort of creating you know kind of art form um, uh, Chris Cunningham another great example of a director that sort of started out in, in kind of pop promos Michel Gondry you know again having they all had these kind of very sort of idiosyncratic kind of style to their kind of filmmaking their storytelling that seemed to marry brilliantly with with the music and with the artists they work with mm. and so so I think that that period of time was interesting for seeing the, uh, the the music video as an art form in itself, not just a promotional vehicle to to, to help sell sell the artist and the music and the, and the video kind of really went went well together. But uh, I remember very clearly the day when um, rather than sitting down as a department and looking through all of the videos that had been sent to us by the labels on a Monday morning. Um, we were just we were getting sent links by the labels of, of YouTube videos that existed, uh, and and suddenly that whole dynamic changes because you, you kind of go well wait aren't aren't we as the broadcaster meant to be the people that write the playlist and then kind of present this and you know, like a radio station we're sort of the tastemakers really, um, and it suddenly went to being well no we're just another another part of the audience because the content is out there for people to to discover it's all um, it's already shipped. Yeah, it's already shipped. You know, the labels have put it out themselves, all the artists. This is probably just before the time when individual artists start to build their own kind of fan bases through video and social media. But certainly you could see there was a big shift away from uh, the kind of the relationship between the labels um, and, and the broadcasters and the labels and the artists and the audience directly. There's an, an analogy I was uh, uh, wondering if you think has any value, which is... Um, Music videos were originally a promotional tool. Ergo, a music video was a TVC for an album or a single. Uh, and it became an art form. A music video was for its own sake, something that ought to look and ha- have its own look and feel and be its own experience that you can just enjoy for its own sake. Um, we, as an industry, often get, we're advertising, we often get criticized for kind of becoming obsessed with making the TVC the piece of work in its own right. You know, it's like, well, uh, Andy Bundy who came on this, the creative director of the Amp Partnership, he said, uh, we're not curating an art gallery. We're trying to communicate our clients' wishes. And I was wondering, it's been quite a successful tack for the music video to turn it into just an enjoyable piece of art of its own. Have we, are we trying to do that with commercials? Have we tried to do that? Is it worth doing that? I think people ought to enjoy adverts even if they don't want what you're trying to sell them. Yeah. Um, I think you know, the uh, the ability for advertising to entertain 
uh, is something that we shouldn't lose sight of. Um, you know, there's there was a period of, of time when it might be a stretch to say that people looked forward to the ad break. Certainly there were some really kind of big set piece acts. And I'm thinking about brands like Levi's that use music in such an iconic way that when you heard Marvin Gaye's, I heard it through the grapevine and you saw Nick Kamen walking into the laundrette, you know, it was, it was a piece of cinema. It was a piece, you know, it was a piece of art. Um, and it didn't always have to be sort of worthy. You think about how, um, uh, you know, it, 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 we can we can use sort of comedy uh, music to comedic effect as well. But I think this 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 notion of um, entertaining through ads is is something that kind of really helps to establish a bond and a connection between the consumer and the audience and and the brand. And it doesn't always have to be you know kind of necessarily kind of pushing a product front and center. Yes, that's part of the story. Uh, but I think that the the kind of emotional attachment that we have with the music it stays with you, you know. Um and and that's why there are probably half a dozen ads that everyone kind of reels off that always mention the same relationship between the brand and the music because it's it's remained intact mm-hmm. and to the point where that it's sort of become the music video almost, you know, right. for, for, for that track, you know, even if it was not originally intentioned for that, intended for that. So I think that it is really interesting. And when advertising, when the quality of advertising starts to, to dip and things start to feel a bit more functional um, or direct perhaps um, and lose the kind of craft, um, then I think that's kind of when, you know, you kind of see both the effectiveness kind of, kind of drops off um, but also, you know, I think that, that relationship between between the music or the, the sound of, of the ad um, and the message seems to have become kind of detached somehow. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the, a, a great song choice, um, you know, one of my favourites in recent years is the um, is the Audi ad with Send in the Cloud, Clowns. I mean, a, a beautiful song um, kind of re-performed in a way that felt like it was bringing something kind of new to it. So... The song had the familiarity in it because you know you might know um, you know the kind of the, the Sinatra version or kind of various other kind of sort of standard versions of that amazing kind of song, but to hear it sung differently, uh, presented differently, but but used very sympathetically with 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 the visuals, um, that is still something that we should we should not lose sight of. And I think that you know the the, the challenge for us is always around uh, kind of you know the budgets what we have to work with. Um, and sometimes the cost of attaching music can be can be really substantial, particularly around the big set piece ads that you tend to get uh, towards the end of the year. Um, and um, and so I think actually that that's where some of you know the work that you guys do as well is interesting because it's sometimes f- finding the less obvious pathway um, to to create something that still has that sense of unique character to it. Yeah. Do you think we are? In a period of time, a lot of people are describing the current era as fairly disappointing for advertising, for the quality of advertising. Do you think we're in an era of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Are we, are we in a bit of self-doubt? Are we having a crisis of confidence? Yeah, I think possibly the, uh, it's, it's caused, I think there, that is true. I think it's caused by, by lots of different reasons. Um, the, uh, the, 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 the multiple options that brands have now in terms of communicating uh, means that things like media budgets are kind of more stretched or more fractured. Mm-hmm. Um, so whereas you might have invested, you know, all of your budget into creating an amazing film that was going to go on TV because TV was the main method for reaching people at home, um, TV is now just one of several. And 
various studies have, sh have shown how effective TV advertising still is in getting your message across, getting in front of your audience, um, having them understand what it is you're trying to kind of convey. Um, but the, the, the options for marketeers now are so varied, so they stretch across social media, and of course that's multiple channels. Um, I think there's been a trend towards using um, social channels because they have been able to sell themselves very effectively around this idea of that our data shows that we can put our stuff in front of exactly the right kind of people you're looking to market to. Yes. And I think that we've had probably a few years now to look at that and go, well, you might, you might have a very good data set, but we're not really sure that the advertising format is actually kind of as effective within that channel because that's not what people are looking for. So the meme that is gathering like a snowball at the moment is the skipping of the YouTube ad. <laughs> no one ever watches a YouTube ad ever. <laughs> I mean, maybe a fraction of a percentile, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that the... Um, I mean, that, and that's why, you know, YouTube have brought in things like the six-second spots. Um, and they started to talk about ways to break your 30-second story down into small bite-sized chunks. So you might serve a six-second ad before the thing you want to see because as a viewer, I'm not going to be so upset at having to wait six seconds for this that I'm going to switch off. Yep. Um, I will in that six seconds get some kind of message about who the brand is or what the story is, and then I'll get retargeted somewhere down the, down the line, whether it's another mid-roll ad within the same video if it's a long-form video, or the next time I go back on the platform, I'll get, I'll get served another part of the story. So starting to chunk your, your story up into, into chapters, that's something which is, as a technique is kind of being used a lot. But I think that lots of these techniques are there to mitigate the loss um, of people's willingness to engage with it, you know? So when you, when, when you kind of say, you know, a decade or, or, or so ago when we had these kind of great set-piece ads that people did want to gather around and watch because it was a big broadcast moment, um, these days I think that the, the majority of advertising, people just don't want to engage with. Mm. Um, they want to make their own decisions um, they feel they're equipped to, to, to do the research themselves and make their own decisions. And I think advertising has to work a lot harder in order to sort of convert people into, into the customers and to retain customers. So I think uh, the, quality, the quality measure is partly a factor of the pressures that we're under as advertisers to get in front of lots of different people at lots of different times. Um, and also the, the effectiveness of the formats that we are being told are the right things to use. I have an intuition as well, just to add on to that, that people find narrowcast on the whole a little bit creepy. The fact that you can track my interests and then advertise explicitly to me what you already know I've expressed an interest in, I actually don't want to be watched that closely. I like broadcast because you're not just looking at me. Yeah, I think the, the relationship that we have with social media is interesting because... Um, I suspect that in generations to come, we will look back at our willingness to surrender privacy um, as something that was incredibly alarming because, you know, we, we wouldn't, wouldn't willingly surrender our security, we wouldn't willingly surrender our finances or our health, um, and yet we are constantly 
giving data about our lives and our preferences to these giant tech platforms. Um, and guess what? They're using them to serve ads back to us. Um, and the reason is because they're, they're free at the point of use, you know, so I don't pay to subscribe to name a social media platform. Um, and the, the, the transaction is I, I feed the machine with enough information for it to know what to sell to me. And I'm constantly, so even though I work in the industry, I'm still surprised when something might pop up on an Instagram feed that I'm not even consciously aware that I've been looking for. You know, somehow it seems to know me better than I know myself. You know, and I think that back to I just want to put something in for the viewers or the listeners if they're if we've retained them for this long, uh, which is the uh, I think it comes from the Vsauce episode how people disappear. And there's a fascinating anecdote at the beginning of that about the fact that Target through marketing data figured out that uh, a young lady was pregnant before she had told her family and had started mailing her relevant coupons for pregnancy. Yeah, exactly. So I think the relationship with 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 data platforms is it, well, it's, it's definitely you know it's in flux at the moment because I think people are starting to realise that that their their privacy has their, their data has been has been given up and and therefore they are at the behest of them. And I think that you look at you know a sort of a younger generation coming through that is um, is certainly kind of more conscious of it uh, and will seek to. Um, to have a different relationship with the tech platforms that perhaps people um, a, a generation or so kind of older have done. Um, and I think, you know, there's there's that trade-off between, um, yes, I, I would like to cut to the chase uh, and find the thing I'm looking for without me having to do all the heavy lifting, which is where AI and algorithms can be useful. Um, but there, But there's a step too far, which is I really didn't want you to tell my family something about me that I hadn't got around to telling them yet myself, you know. Yeah. So uh, I think the, the, the question for the next five to ten years will be how much power do we to continue to give these platforms without some degree of either accountability or for us to be able to, to take back some degree of control over what we uh, sort of hand over. I also, as an addendum to that, um, want to offer up a thought to you. Uh, do you ever have people saying to you, or maybe it's a thought you've had yourself, um, oh, I'm sure my phone microphone is listening to me because I got an advert for something that I didn't explicitly search for. Yeah, and I don't know whether it's true or not. I mean, I've, I've looked at the settings on the apps and I've turned off you know, the microphone where, where I can and, and those things you, you sort of do to sort of safeguard yourself. I was on a shoot a couple of years ago uh, and I was talking to a director about a certain kind of iPhone gimbal you could get, which effectively was like a handheld steady cam. Yes. So you pop your iPhone into this kind of holder uh, and it means that you can kind of run around and walk around and with, you know, with, with phones being able to take 4K and, and beyond kind of quality footage now, you can record some great stuff on, on your phone. Um, and we were just talking about this thing that, he, that he'd been using on a shoot recently. Um, and in, in our next, I think in, in the lunch break the same day, I was on Instagram and scrolling through and I got certain ad for the very thing he was talking about. And I know for a fact I hadn't had any time during the day to, uh, to, to go on a search for it. Um, but somehow that have, that have been you know, kind of served to me. Now, is it coincidence that the algorithm knows me so well that it's looking for things that might be on the market? I don't know. You could probably argue it either way, but it seemed pretty creepy to me. Yeah, I think the um, my uh, I I often uh, turn to my brother for help with critical thinking stuff like that because he's yeah I, well you know he's a 
a Manchester grammar and an Oxford boy and now works in the government. And so he's got a more disciplined line of thinking than I do. And uh, I, I asked him about that. And he said, well, consider the number of things you talk about that don't get advertised to you. Yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. It's not by any means a conclusion, but it's an interesting thing to weigh up in the argument. Yeah, of course. I mean, obviously, you, you kind of, you notice the things that stand out. Um, yeah. And I, I guess that's the thing is that so many messages pass us by now, whether physically or digitally, at the moment, far more digitally, obviously, because we're just simply not kind of going out, which is another thing which is changing the industry. You know, we've had it, we've had a year now where outdoor media, experiential, all that side of the industry really just hasn't had a role to play at all. And everything has become digital. Um, and so that has an impact on, you know, kind of digital content and digital advertising, you know, and our relationship with it has, has also kind of changed because of what's been going on. So I think that's it. You know, we, we are inundated with signals all the time. Um, and so the things that kind of do take your notice either do because they're genuinely really useful. And actually, thank you very much. That's probably, probably saved me some time. Um, or has creeped you out and you just think, well, hang on, I, I wasn't aware that, that the, the relationship was working in that way. Yes. Let's um, use the, you mentioned lockdown and thankfully, I think this may be one of the only podcasts that I've recorded wherein we didn't spend half an hour talking about how was last year? What did you do? What was March like? Scary, right? And so... Um, the uh, implications of lockdown that are relevant to you are very interesting. And that, let, let's talk about the, uh, the, the, the music festival that you were describing to me when we initially spoke and also the relationship that the lockdown had with the ability of artists to, you know, uh, what's the word, expand their presence in the marketplace. Yeah, so I think for all the creative industries and uh, for performers, obviously whether you're a musician or a comedian, um, Someone you know, whose, whose food oh. is put on the table by going out where people can gather. Exactly. Yeah, all of that has been has been decimated, and um, we'll really struggle to to return to, to where it was before. Um, and you know, through through my work, but also through my sort of my hobbies, and, and I, I class kind of sort of playing and performing music now as as a hobby. Um, you know, all of that has been kind of sort of taken away, and, and I speak to friends of mine who are active musicians, professionals kind of touring and recording. And, you know, they, they haven't been able to do very much at all over the last year, apart from write at home. That's the only thing that people have done. Um, so last year, one of our clients is Barclay Hard, and they, and they sponsor a number of kind of uh, music festival activations across the year. So um, they used to have British Summertime, which was a Hyde Park festival, but they also have a number of other uh, festivals, um, Reading and Leeds being, a, being an example of one, um, uh, Isle of Wight, Latitude and so on. So they, 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 they kind of helped to support um, music festivals um, in, in, in that sense. With all those festivals absent last year, the, the challenge we had is what, what do we do um, that can have some kind of positive impact on an industry that's really struggling? Um, and the thing that we were talking about is if you're a headline artist and you already have 5 million people following you on Instagram and you have a pretty good YouTube channel uh, and you have a platform and you have a means to sustain interest and maybe use the time just to go back in the studio and write the next project, um, you're, you're going to be less heavily impacted as um, an artist that's just looking to break through at the moment. So someone that was looking at the 2020 festival season as an opportunity to get out there in, in front of a big audience for the first time. 
those are the guys that really stood, we thought, stood to lose the most um, from that complete absence of any kind of live music because they were at that critical stage in their, in their kind of careers where labels don't support new talent for that long. They kind of have basically, uh, you know, one chance to kind of to land something. Um, or- Let me just jump in there with, uh, you know, HMD, perfect example. Uh, uh, Dean released 2019 on Black Butter, a Sony subsidiary, 500,000 streams. Uh, he put out a single a couple of weeks ago that's done less than 200. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and also, you know, artists are taking it upon themselves to build their fan bases independently of a relationship with with a record label as well. And, and you know, so, I mean, Arctic Monkeys were probably one of the first bands to really kind of generate a social following. Um, MySpace before, at the time. Yeah, before they sort of became kind of commercially sort of successful and they, and they had the, the the power of that. But for, for those acts that were, were suddenly without any opportunity to play live, um, we, we, we came up with, with a, a mechanic whereby the famous acts could use their talent and their fame to shine a light on those that needed it the most. Um, so we created a format called Share the Stage, which ran as um, four episodes uh, on YouTube, and then Channel 4 did a, uh, a one-hour special with Fern Cotton as our host. Um, but we filmed it at Abbey Road Studios, um, and the mechanic basically was, you know, kind of headline artist as a cover version of an up-and-coming band who they rate, you know, and, um, and it gets their big audience to see this band probably for the first time. Um, and it's also an interesting kind of dy- dynamic. You look at, um, you know, the cover version is quite an interesting way to either introduce your fans to something new that talks about a different facet of your identity as, as an artist or an act, gives you permission to sort of get out of your lane a little bit as well, have some have some fun and be a bit playful. Um, and so we, we were kind of using this sort of technique as, you know, really as a, as a benevolent move, which was to try and help kind of shine a spotlight on those that kind of need it the most. Um, but I also think it's, it's just really interesting as, as a music fan to hear someone and hear their take on somebody else's song, you know, whether you're established or not, you know, and I think that we were talking about some of the other, you know, the interesting uh, cover versions of songs that have been used in ads before. Um, and I think it kind of works both ways. You can be an up-and-coming artist and you can use a well-known song to catapult yourself into the spotlight, but also you can you can kind of go the other way. So the whole campaign was built around trying to shine a light on kind of the up-and-coming talent that needed the, the biggest leg up the most because of last year. And I guess what we're looking at this year is how we kind of extend that into a world where festivals do start to happen at some point. Um, so what is the sort of the relationship between the headliners um, and the people that not only have you not seen play live for a year, but you may be seeing for the first time, you know, and also there's a whole lot of stuff that's been written over the last 12 months that hasn't had an audience yet. So I think all these, I think the next, you know, the, the tail end of this summer next year will be really interesting for music because I think there's going to be a whole load of stuff coming through because writing is the only thing that people have really been able to do. Yes, and writing it without as, without a scene that, or, or, or a culture that's shifting as quickly and so maybe there'll be some different influences and some different sounds coming through. Um, so and so that's something you've been doing um, uh, uh, with Iris more recently. And I suppose, in a sense, that takes us from where we started to where we are now. Um, and it's also now about eleven forty, which means you've given us more than an hour of your time. Uh, is there anything else you want to get in before we before we uh, wrap up? Wow. Um, I mean, God, we've, we've, we've been all over the place, haven't we? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that it's really interesting for 
for creatives to con to really continue to pursue this idea of uh, the, the meaning that the, the music has in, in their work, um, and whether that's in, a, in advertising uh, use or whether it's in, in kind of more my world, which is probably the more kind of branded content space or branded entertainment. Um, I think that the opportunity to uh, to kind of borrow interest is is kind of really fascinating. Um, and I think that the uh, the sort of marriage of pictures and sound is something that will continue to be uh, kind of sort of really, really important. And um, as we sort of go through, you know, this evolution of social media and where we are at the moment. And I think what's, what's been one of the biggest frustrations for creatives um, is having to work with platforms that talk about being sound off. Um, I think that's kind of probably one of the most uh, kind of disappointing uh, things <laughs> to see in a, in a brief, which is like, you know, we don't need to broadcast to that sense anymore. Yeah, exactly. You know, kind of, you know, sort of designed for, for that world. Well, let's, let's hopefully not have to design for that world anymore yeah. um, and design for a world where, where sound is kind of very much on, because I think without that, um, I think you lose so much of the story and so much of the meaning. So um, uh, that, that's that's the thing really for us is, is to kind of keep looking at those opportunities, uh, whether it's through um, commercial music that's been released, whether it's been whether it's through identifying new stuff that is yet to find an audience, um, or even through sort of composition. And we I mean we haven't really kind of touched the composition today much, but you know when you think about the role that uh, composed music has both in terms of film and TV. Um, you know, you can probably get into a whole other podcast about, you know, the work of John Williams, for example, you know, yeah. um, or uh, Joe um, Sishi, the, um, the guy who writes the music for the Studio Ghibli films. Um, I think I've got his name wrong. But, um, you know, the, 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 the whole kind of area of original music um, written for TV, film, for ads, um, uh, and for content is is all kind of also super important. So yeah, I just you know I think that it's however however we can retain that interest in it, um, whether it's through kind of sort of sharing ideas uh, collectively. Um, obviously, you know at the moment it's difficult for us to kind of share ideas in the same room as each other. So yes. you know forums like this um, I think are kind of really valuable. Um, so you know I, again you know thanks for for having me on the on the show today um, uh, and have the opportunity to kind of sort of chat at length with you about some of the stuff that kind of I've been through as well. But um, yeah I just think it's kind of fundamentally important to our work and and we mustn't lose sight of it. <laughs> <laughs>